Hello, and welcome to The Cage Equation again. I'm Greg Mickelson. Join me is Malcolm Mickelson to once again figure out who's to blame for winning a perfect Nicolas Cage performance. This episode, we're looking at leaving Las Vegas, um, Nicolas Cage's Academy Award-winning performance. It was released in 1995, 111 minutes long. I uh, had a budget of only $3.5 million and made $49.8 million. It, besides that, was nominated in several other categories for acting and directing. Um, it scored at 82 out of 100 on the Metacritic, which gives us 18 points to Nick between the co-stars, the writers, and the directors, and anyone else we feel like going after. Real quick plot. Basically, Nicolas Cage decides to drink himself to death, liquidates all of his cash, literally into alcohol, moves to Las Vegas, meets a... I believe now we refer to as a sex worker, played by Elizabeth Shue. They form a bond and relationship until the sad ending. Uh, Malcolm, how did you enjoy this movie? I don't know if you can call it sad ending. It's the the same level of sadness throughout the entirety of the movie. <laughs> it was it was hard to watch, but not because it was a bad movie. It was, I think, a brutally accurate movie of an alcoholic spiraling until they drink themselves to death. So, yeah, super fun. Yeah. It was one of the movies, though, like uh, some of the movies I we watch, I th- I think about later because I'm laughing about them. This one actually kind of like three days later after I was like, hey, I don't want to watch this. I'm watching it. Oh, this is depressing. And about two or three days later, I'm thinking, I really like that one part where it was, they weren't doing anything, but just the way it was shot, like a couple of times when they were out on the street together. Mm-hmm. And just, I mean, it was actually a really well done movie. Um, it was, yeah. And same um, when they're at the motel, they go out to the desert or whatever. I don't know. There's some parts of that that I don't know. It felt like like an actual big budget movie, which we haven't gotten to see in a while. I guess Renfield was a big budget movie, but this was like a drama, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So it's... The, sh- the streets were interesting, though. They didn't get any street permits, and that's why they were all shot single shot, which I think made them look cooler. I don't think it was on purpose. Well, and I, yeah, I was reading the same thing when the director was actually saying, we should probably just point out real quick the people that were involved in this because it was, once again, <laughs> a very good movie. So it was directed by Michael Figgis, who has done a lot of other movies like this, uh, personal, smaller, smaller movies. Um, was also written by him. It was based on a book called Leaving Las Vegas by John O'Brien. And yeah, it was shot beautifully. It really was. And the acting is really good. Elizabeth Shue, I think, was probably, well, she was going up against a lot of other heavy hitters in the Academy Award. But yeah, it was just a really good movie. But at the same time, it was really depressing. Yes. Yeah. Very. Yeah. I think uh, this was, I don't know, this was kind of weird to see Nicolas Cage, too, because I don't think I've seen him serious in anything that we've watched. I mean, even his like more serious roles we've watched haven't really been dramas, I guess. Lord of War maybe was supposed to be the closest, but that didn't work well. Um, and we haven't even actually, we never released a actual We're podcast. We're just going to constantly reference it, yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, and never talk about the movie itself. It did come out, and like I said, it came out in uh, 1995. It came out right in the middle of, right before... He knocked out after this was the Rock Con Air face off. And then Snake Eyes, um, eight millimeter bringing out the dead gets 
gone in 60 seconds. After this, it was like five years of him just high-level hits of action star stuff. I don't know if this is like his, after he got th through with this one, he was like, I've done enough serious stuff, now I want to get to the next part of my career. Or if he was even thinking that way. Um, this was shot in 28 days, so it really wasn't a, a huge investment of time, and they were just trying to get it done as quickly as possible. I didn't know the 28 days thing, but you can you can kind of tell. Um, even I thought it was interesting. I was reading they use a bunch of um clips of her talking to a therapist or someone, but they never show who the other person is, Elizabeth Shue. Um, and then I was reading those were all apparently her screen tests to get the role. Oh and really? The, uh, the, yeah, the director just liked them. Um, so he he put them in the movie, and I guess they the production company wanted them all taken out. Um which is strange because I thought they were one of the best parts of the movie as far as like pushing the plot forward without those. I don't know if I would have felt like there was any connection with the plot or any sense to why she was sticking around this guy. Yeah. And at the same time, I think it was, I understand a production company's view too, because it was, it was really not really, it wasn't like a nuts and bolts thing. It was just kind of like interspersed between there. And it never really nailed the fact that it was, it all happened. I think that entire, that entire therapy session happened after the movie, basically yeah. it was at the end of it. And yeah, it was like two different things strung together, which I would say the director, one of the reasons why this movie worked is because the director was able to take all these parts and string them together. But at the same time, it okay so i'm gonna say one of the things that maybe take off 18 points total for me i'll just start out right off the bat that last shot yeah where she says i think i i think i loved him and they have like one of those slow motion from him earlier and they're smiling and kind of laughing and then it fades out to black and it was such it was kind of like i don't know how to end this movie the <laughs> there yeah. it is other than that, I mean, okay, so let's uh, let's go. I, I think one of the other things is this is uh, really shows a lot of the really good things that Nicolas Cage does as an actor. Mm -hmm. And also may show some of the things he doesn't do well as an actor because of this. It, he does this so well. He uh, He pulled off the drunk thing really good. And it was kind of over the top stuff when he was doing it, but at the same time, it's over the top because he's drunk. So it all fit together really well. But the whole movie was, it's kind of like more of a set piece. It was more like a, a, a stage play. Yeah, he did. Um, I was, he, he did the, he played the drunk really, really well and accurately as far as, you know, I went through a time where I was drinking a lot and it was almost hard to watch with how accurate some of the scenes were for him. Um, and I think the part that I took away from it is if he can have something like that, that he can really sink his teeth into, he seems to really flourish with it. I just don't know if a lot of the other roles give him like something he gets that invested in because he had a, a big process to learning how to play an alcoholic, <laughs> including binge drinking and recording himself and watching those recordings all repeatedly, apparently. My favorite part, though, of his of his acting process was that he had an onset uh, drinking advisor. He had a guy that he found from somebody else, and they said he was like this guy was a poet and actually an alcoholic who was actually drunk on set, 
with him was uh, sometimes he'd be curled up in the in the trailer drunk and and Nicolas Cage would just use him as a sounding board on how to do the scenes because oh, the guy was an actually actual alcoholic and I was just like he also said it was one of his most favorite roles to research because he got to go to I think he said he went to like Ireland or something and got drunk for for a week solid yeah um, that and he, um, I don't know, He there was a lot of little things too. Um, something weird that I noticed, but I just thought it was kind of weird. There's a bunch of scenes with them eating, but he never ate. But they would yeah. like actively show her eat, um, which was purposeful. But then there was this little part that I only noticed because I was reading the trivia while I was watching the movie. And like, there's a scene where she makes him food and he eats ice cubes instead. He's sitting over on the other side of the table eating the ice cubes out of his drink instead of, uh, he doesn't eat food a single time in the entire movie. Yeah, it was it was just scary when you get down to it. And, and if you haven't, like, I, I've never drank or anything, so it gets really weird while I'm watching it. Because I've seen drunk people and everything else be around that, and I've been in bars doing things. And um, you don't realize how quickly that can, I mean, that was... That whole movie was supposed to take place over like what a month. Yeah, I don't know what the time frame was, but um, that was part that you know Abby watched just a little bit with me, and she didn't like. And when she when we talked about it afterwards, she said, "Well, I just don't understand, you know, her defending him uh, when he's when he's been treating her like that for so long." And I was like, "No, I think you missed the part where uh, the scene she had seen. I think they had known each other for less than twenty four hours at that point." Yeah. Um, yeah, and it was just a weird relationship. But yeah, it happens extremely quick. But he's also drinking multiple, multiple bottles a day. Like when he packs up his bag, I think he has like 30 bottles in his suitcase when he brings it over to her house. So it's not it's not like him saying I'm drinking myself to death and then, you know, having a bottle a day. This is just chugging vodka by the handle. Yeah, so this yeah. is this is actual like actual poisoning himself with this one i think then the whole idea between the two is some act when they had that line where she said he said he wouldn't wouldn't say anything about her uh her job and he she wouldn't ever ask him to stop drinking and that was i think it was the only connection i mean that was where the connection came besides the fact they treated each other nicely um which Mm -hmm. they probably aren't used to is that both of them were like i'm not gonna the one thing that we both know that we shouldn't be doing is the one thing that i I won't hold you accountable for. Yeah. But. Um, and I think the last line, though, even though they did the fade to black after um, where she says, uh, I think we both realized we didn't have much time and I accepted him for who he was. I didn't expect him to change. I think he felt that for me too. I liked the drama and he needed me like that. I just, I, yeah, I don't get how they wanted to remove those clips. Yeah. I, <sighs> Because to me, that and then um, that and then uh, another part, uh, I don't have it pulled up, but those are what actually make like gave purpose to the movie for me. Like, it, otherwise, I really just wouldn't get the connection other than he wasn't mean to her the first time he hired her. Like, yeah, that wouldn't that wouldn't be enough for me to be like, OK, this this makes any sort of sense. Um, <laughs> also, can we just before we get too far into it? He finds her not once, but twice on the streets of Las Vegas. Um, impressive feat. Yes. I mean, she she could have been staying in the same place for several hours a day in Las Vegas, and you probably still would not find especially at night. No. No. 
No, because she the second time she I guess she finds him, but he's just sitting drunk on a, a different bench and he sold his car, so he's just wandered off into the middle of Vegas at that point. Yeah. But yeah, okay, so that's Nicolas Cage. Um and a little bit of the other actor. I I will say I think I don't understand, I don't know who she went up against, but I felt like she at least had the same level of performance as Nicolas Cage, if not surpass him. I thought she would knocked it out of the park okay so this this is 1995 here are the actresses she went against susan Mm -hmm. sarandon for dead man walking um sharon stone for casino meryl street for bridges of madison county and emma thompson for sense and sensibility um susan sarandon won the one this one part of the reason i think she won one was because the best actor carrie category sean penn was on was also up for the same movie and i don't know why but i think sometimes the the oscar people like this like split well i'm gonna vote for this person i'm gonna vote for this part this movie this movie this movie this movie Mm -hmm. um especially when you're dealing with really weighty movies i don't think any of these were like blockbuster movies of course he was going up against richard dreyfus and uh for mr holland's opus anthony hopkins with nixon sean penn and then Miso Troise for Il Pustino, which is an Italian movie, which was not going to probably win it all at the Oscars either. But yeah, Susan, I think Susan Sarandon won that because Dead Man Walking was considered an important movie. And somebody had to win for it. And but even then, she's still going up against Meryl Streep. Yeah. And then Sharon Stone Casino, she was great too. So it was, it actually was kind of. Not the same role, but it was a Las Vegas. She was a Las Vegas showgirl or something like that. Same thing. Yeah, I know that's not actually what her role was, but we're talking about this movie, not Casino. So, yeah, I haven't. I don't think I've seen. I think I've seen part of Dead Man Walking, but I don't think I've seen any of the other ones. Well, Dead Man Walking is like this movie. It's like I know what it's about. I know. I just don't want to spend an hour and a half or two hours of my life dealing with that. I, I read enough news articles instead. I, I go straight to the actual news articles for stuff like that. I don't go to a movie for this kind of stuff. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, so, and then Braveheart won Best Picture and Director this year, too. So that was all going on. Meanwhile, Braveheart. The, uh, the obvious winner for all the categories should have been Babe with George Miller. But, you know. Babe is classic. Although I think so, I think I was supposed to watch Babe three times uh-huh. in elementary school, and all three times it got canceled. Really? One time, I don't know. One time it was like someone didn't we for any movie they had to get their parents signed, and not enough kids got their parents to sign the sheet, so none of us got to watch. <laughs> um, or Babe. And then the next time, like the VHS or whatever, didn't work. And then the last time they just again canceled the movie, I think because people just uh, didn't get their sheet signed, which happened an incredible amount of times. I yeah. also this that's when I learned kids didn't sign their parents' signatures. I didn't know. <laughs> that. I thought that was just a thing people did. <laughs> I signed my planner. I think for all if you guys had gone in and signed a piece of paper, I don't know that they would have known that that was actually your signature. They might have fought you. And I would like to say for all everyone out there, we thank you continuously for taking care of that for us. Because I can never find my planner. 
Yeah. Well, yeah. that was. I, I've never understood saying, well, also, we had, I think we had Babe on VHS. So I think we probably have actually seen it close to 100 times anyway. Yeah, I think it was one of the ones that uh, was at Grandma Scott's house. Yeah. That so. and Land Land Before Time were the like the only options. Anyway, it is understandable why she didn't win it. It wasn't as big of a movie. It wasn't considered as important of a movie. Nicolas Cage won for that movie, so they... They had already kind of, I think, decided that was who was going to win for that one. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. It's it almost seems a lot of times like they're they sit back and they all just go, well, we'll give this person this, this person that. And I know it doesn't actually probably happen that way, but when you have a group thing, I feel like it probably happens that way. You think so? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. It, it always seems coordinated. And anytime there's you know a big article about how um, there's no transparency or. You know, they're not, they never vote for like diverse movies. Um, all of a sudden, magically, all the voters have aligned themselves to whatever movie is going to help repair that image as quickly as possible. Yeah. And there's some sort of communication between all of them. I don't, who votes? Who votes for the Oscars? It's, it's for, it's industry people, people who've won before. Jamie Lee Curtis? Jamie Lee Curtis won instead of, instead of Angela Bassett. And it was, I don't know. And then that started it all over again because that was just, they, they gave her something because it, that's the problem is I think they, they give people stuff like career awards, awards versus actual awards for the movies half the time. So. I don't know. I don't have the energy to follow any of that. I don't think I've ever watched an awards show. Um, I don't watch them, but I listen to people who watch them on podcasts and, you know, in between when they're talking about whatever else they're talking about. So I, that's how I get all it's my like information. This. It's like all our loyal listeners are learning now yes. about the 1995 Oscars. <laughs> Oscars, which, although she should, she should have done better, but she did win several other awards throughout the whole, the whole award season on this. So, I mean, she got like several European awards. Um, she was a finalist in the Golden Globes, a bunch of other stuff. So, and she came out nowhere from, what were the two movies that she was in before this? Uh, Adventures Babysitting and Cry Kid. I mean, Adventures of Babysitting did introduce us to Vincent D'Onofrio. So, is that was that his first movie? It's like one of his very first movies. He played a garage mechanic who uh, the kid thought was Thor. So he plays oh. he plays a he plays Thor in the movie. So that's always been a fun little one. Yeah. So as we're going to go through and like try and find the eighteen points, I would say the eighteen points probably aren't going to come from any of the any of the co-stars really it's it's hard too because the parts i didn't like i felt were necessary and like the opening sequence is just a roller coaster of me wanting to turn off a movie um but also i don't know if they, i've ever watched a movie that so the 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 credits the opening credits don't roll for i think 10 minutes into the movie the yeah. first 10 minutes is just him in la getting fired after getting blackout drunk, going to strip clubs and I think alcohol stores and hitting on women in bars. Yes. And I don't know if any opening scene has ever established a character quicker and more efficiently than that. I knew exactly who he was and I knew where the movie was going the moment it happened. Yeah. I love the little dance of him taking the bottles off and dancing at the beginning. There was some funny stuff in it too, like him holding the phone upside down. While he's trying, yes. he's yelling into the phone because he's got it upside down. And then, yeah, it was it was pretty bad. 
And then there's some other stuff. I I think they're really smart that they didn't go too much into his backstory because you got just enough of it from the the picture and the bicycle. Because if you would have seen his actual kid or his actual wife, I don't think you would have been able to follow him through the movie and think anything good about him at all. No. Um, and it also gives, I think, one of the better lines, which is... Uh, I don't know if she left because I was drinking or if I started drinking because she left or something along those lines. Yeah. Um, I have a feeling it's probably that he was drinking, drinking before, before she left. He, yeah, I um, thought so too. But I mean, this whole thing's act. I mean, it's exploration into alcoholism and drug addiction and all this other stuff. So, ugh. <sighs> but yeah, I think that, I mean, the biggest negative I have is like you said, that the final scene was just that he had no idea what to do. He didn't know how to get out of it. And it's like um some authors and one of my favorite series, I don't think she knows how to like conclude things, so it's always just really sudden. And they she'll build up to these these big moments of like the final showdown, and then everyone just dies at the end of a chapter, two-thirds of the way through the book. It all it just all kind of falls together and then they just close close the movie up real quick and we're all done yeah um okay so i do have some negatives on this besides the closing scene so i don't think we can go into actors we don't really have anybody we're going to say bad things about i don't think mm -hmm. although i would do like to we'll do one other call out because i'm about to talk about music in this one to the taxi driver that was driving her was uh lou Rawls, who was uh one of, I mean, you would you probably wouldn't know him. I think if you knew anything from him, he had one big hit that was that still kind of gets played every once in a while. You'll never find another love like mine. Anyway, that was uh, he was supposed to actually sing in that scene too. I think Stormy Weather or something like that. And he's really a one of the, one of the great American singers we've had in the '60s. 70s as an R&B and soul singer, but they thought that would be too cheesy. So that's my last old man call out for that, because Lou Raw is actually, when I was a kid, that was getting played a lot in my household. But the music in this was starting to make me a little angry, because it's all that kind of jazz sometimes. But actually, I started listening to it. It's actually really good. The director actually was, was the composer in it, Mike, Mike Figgs, Figgis. I was getting mad that they're calling the composer, except he's also the trumpet player in all the music, too. He played in the music? Yeah, he was actually part of that that jazz. They had a one jazz combo that basically did most of the incidental music. And he was the trumpet player, and actually a very good trumpet player. But the thing that was bothering me most was, was oddly enough, was all the sting stuff that was going on. Because he does a lot of jazz standards this and i will admit the police were my favorite band in high school i know every sting album i love sting but sometimes when he does jazz it just seems like it sucks all the soul of what i think jazz actually is out of it it's like the smoothed over version of it which is kind of what i had even with this movie was is it's a the movie seems really french to me like we're dealing with we're dealing with an alcoholic. We're dealing with a prostitute. We're dealing with gangsters. We're dealing with everything else. But everything is absolutely clean all over the place there all the time. It's like it's like a sterilized version of all this stuff because 
people who are living these lives don't tend to have absolutely clean apartments and absolutely, you know what I mean? It's like, it was all staged on that way. It's like they took all these people and these things and these situations and they took them out and they put them into a, like almost like a shadow box or something like that, making a diorama of all this stuff. And it's the same way with the, some of the jazz stuff. And Sting, Sting sounds that way to me too. It's absolutely beautiful, but at the same time, it doesn't have anything to do with what's going on, what usually is going on with that kind of stuff. Yeah, and that's, um, I think that's one thing the director seemed to struggle with is like, so I think one of the things he wanted to show is how negatively her life did get impacted by him being there. And so she lives in this gated community in this really, really nice apartment place and then eventually gets kicked out of it because of him. Um, but I don't think he, like, I think he just wanted to show like, oh, there was a negative impact to this. So he put her up and like the apartment she lived in was, uh, it's nicer than any apartment I've ever seen. Yeah. Um, it, it looked like it was like a penthouse almost that she was living out of, which is, I mean, a really nitpicky thing to go after. But yeah, I mean, it just goes towards what you're saying, which is it really, they did, they were living like pretty high class lives. I think he bought a Rolex at one point, which I mean, he bought it from a pawn shop and got a really good deal or whatever on it. But he happened to walk in at the same time that someone was selling a Rolex for $500. No, I think, no, he was sold that Rolex. He went in and the other guy was complaining because the guy wasn't paying him enough for it. And then he bragged about the fact he watch he was selling was so much better that guy's better basically and said give me five hundred dollars for it because he didn't care he was going to uh, well i saw also, him check his his wrist a few more times so i guess i just i thought i had misunderstood the scene and he had bought the watch from that guy but i well, think he was checking his wrist not realizing that he had pawned off his his rolex then yeah and that rolex is actually was actually owned by the guy that wrote the book that the movie was based off of which is a I could tell. Thing. Yeah, I could tell. I could see it. And I knew that is an author's Rolex. <laughs> so I, I get like wanting to include things like to nod towards it. But if I was the author, I would be like, uh, you just want my watch. Well, uh, the author was dead before the movie even came was out. He? So, yeah, very sad circumstances on that, too. So because it was an autobiography, the, the movie is basically an autobiography. Oh, yeah. Well, that makes it even more depressing. Thank you for that. Yeah. It just kept, I mean, I started researching. I was like, okay, I'm going to stop now before I get too far down into it. I, I now, stopped before I got to the author, apparently. So anyway, I, I don't know. That was like, the music was bothering me a little bit, except also it's set in Las Vegas. So, but I mean, I don't know. That's, that's just the whole aesthetic of what was going on. I think it was the director's aesthetic. But that was one thing I guess that kind of bothered me was it's the, it it was the Hollywood version of this, almost all the way across. It was like a, a 1950s or 60s version of alcoholism and and all this, you know, all the, the bad stuff going on, the seedy side of life. Although if it was showing all the stuff for real, then I don't think I would have even made it even. No. Yeah, I would have stopped right away. So, All right, well, we have to assign 18 points. I I honestly don't know where to put them. Okay, so I'm gonna give uh, I'm gonna give uh, nine points. It's got eighteen points. I'm gonna split it. I'm gonna give nine points to uh, to the uh, slow motion laugh of Nicolas Cage at the end of the movie. It's one of my least favorite scenes of any <laughs> any. I I hate the remembrance scene. Really? There's just remembering them at their best. I it's one of my least favorite things in movies. 
is is a flashback just showing them laughing. That's how I always remember though. I don't I don't I've watched I an guess hour and fifty to... minutes of that guy. I don't need the voiceover with the flashback. It doesn't happen nearly as I don't remember the last time I saw it in a new movie. It's one of the best things that they killed off in movies. My favorite part about it, though, is possibly the worst and dorkiest part. I mean, they found the the three seconds of that movie when he looked the most unlovable. I mean, other than other than when he died, and even then, it was like, hey, that's a pretty good death scene. But oh, uh, speaking of scenes. How do we not talk about his his vampire hiss at the at the waitress? In that I don't. It was one of the only times that I. It was just. It was just Nicolas Cage. I don't yeah. know what that was. I don't know why that was in the movie. It was weird. Sorry, I because most people haven't seen this. Like two thirds away through the movie, they're eating out, and a waitress comes up and he raises his hands. Like like he's pretending to be a vampire and like almost hisses towards her and then just goes back to being his alcoholic self. Yeah. Uh, I think it was just supposed to be him like, you know, trashed in public, but I don't it wasn't it wasn't his character, it didn't seem like it just seemed like Nicholas Gage fucking around on the set. Uh yeah. Sorry. Uh no, yeah. that's well, fine. I, nice points go? I don't know. I guess I guess the other nine points would go. Go to Sting. Would that be okay? I don't know. Did you even notice that those songs were in there at all? It sounded like every other generic Las Vegas. Yeah, that was like my problem. Jazz music. Yeah. yeah. And I don't I don't have anywhere to put the points. So if you wanna if you wanna put them on Sting, put them on Let's give some to Sting. I mean, when else are, when other time were we ever gonna get to Sting? It's like we're gonna watch the original Dune or something. So I mean he's not gonna <laughs> I see as a trainee. All I see is an Atreides. I want to kill. Oh, uh, I watched oh, that. I, I watched that. In. He he composed the Emperor's New Groove. Also, did he? Yeah. Oh, who did? Stink. Stink. Oh yeah, that's right. He did. Because he came out. He actually uh, put the put the song out too. It was on. It was like a little pop hit that was supposed to be. He was Fade uh, Rotha. Yes. Oh. Huh. Okay. Yeah, you should. You should just watch five minutes and five, just take five minutes of watching that movie of like the highlights of that one. And then you'll go back to Villanova's and go, oh my gosh, how did they, how's this even the same thing? I'm looking at a, a still from it and it's, it looks like a garbled mess is what it looks like. It, it is. I, it half of so... them are wearing hazmat suits. I assume, And then <laughs> the other half, I assume are the Satakar. And then there's a guy uh... who I think is supposed to be a Freeman. He's got a hose up his nose. But he looks like he's about to pass out. Who's the redhead, curly redheaded guy in the background? I don't even know which picture. Like, is he the fat guy? Because I mean, it could be. Uh, oh, it's probably um, the the Baptista part. Let me look. You're showing it to me right now. I will. The the red haired guy uh, to the right of Sting. Yeah, that's uh, that's the Baptista part. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Cool. <laughs> sure it is. That, that's what happens when you take somebody who uh, David Lynch and put him in control of this movie. That it was just a really bad choice of director. I don't think it would have been a great movie anyway, but yeah, it's just too bad. Sorry, I'm clicking through the stills. We should wrap up because I'm sure he's he's plugging someone's nose and <laughs> and like he's like smothering someone. What is this movie? Uh.
He, that's the that's the, the Duke. He's he's torturing the Duke by by plugging his nose <laughs> like that. But I wish you could go through some more because I the one I want you to I, yeah. There's the there's the Baron. Thurfer there he is. That's Thurfer Hadawa. With the big eyebrows and stuff. Wait, why is there why is there a sphinx cat inside a machine? What am I looking at? <laughs> I don't know what that is. I can't remember that one. It's a torture device of some type. And they just brought that cat along too. Oh, and then oh, this is a good one. If you go back for just a second, that thing on his chest. Uh-huh. Uh, if you if anybody's seen the original Dune, they they everybody that works for the Harkonnens has got that. That's their heart plug. And if they decide to kill them, they can just pull the plug, literally, on the person. That seems so inefficient. That seems less efficient than shooting someone. Oh. Okay. Okay. So oh now that we've God. now we use the podcast to look at stills of a movie that we were talking about. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So I guess the next one was, we're going to be watching is called Primal. Yes. Um, Primal. We're, we're on a march to a thousand downloads. Yes. Impressive, we know. And Primal is another one that he's made during his uh his uh season of his tax pay, pay payments. Um so although this one looks pretty like it's got a little higher quality than some of them. <laughs> I'm not holding my breath on that. Oh I the trailer I, was just a snake in a cage. I um, watched part of a movie called The Humanity Bureau. And at some point I'm gonna make you watch it too because I watched it. And it's going to make everything else we've watched look like the Academy Awards nominees all the way across the board. Hey, Jiu-Jitsu? Jiu-Jitsu? No. I don't know what I'm saying. Jiu-Jitsu was a classic. I was going to say it was, Jiu-Jitsu. It's one of the best. It would make Jiu-Jitsu look like, yeah. It, it, it would make the Wicker Man look interesting. Kill Chain. I, Sorry, I'm, now I'm going into his, <laughs> his other movies made around that time. Okay. <laughs> okay. Well... I'm Drake Mickelson. It's been Malcolm Mickelson once again. Uh, we're going to blame a slow-mo laugh by Nicolas Cage and Sting. Those are two people who ruined this movie, or at least a, Nicholas, a perfect movie. Um, thank you for listening. We'll see you next time with Primal. And you're welcome, Nicolas Cage. We've done it again.